Hey, hey, Minnesota PAs. Welcome to the MAPA podcast, the podcast by Minnesota PAs for Minnesota PAs. My name is Jeff Sanquist, PAC, and on this episode, we will be highlighting articles from the July and August 2022 issue of Impact. That's the bi-monthly publication delivered directly to your inbox, keeping you informed and up-to-date on important information related to your practice. And remember, you can find current and past issues of Impact under the News tab on our homepage at minnesotapa.org. But before we get into this issue, a quick disclaimer and reminder, this podcast is not intended for medical advice and should not be taken as such. The opinions expressed are those of the individuals. And finally, I apologize in advance to anyone whose name I do not pronounce correctly. Now on with the episode. And we will start with a message from the new MAPA president, P.A. Carolyn Jarr. A warm hello to all my fellow PAs and PA students. July begins a new leadership year at MAPA, and I am honored to have assumed the role of your president. As your new president, I would first like to say how deeply appreciative I am of your membership and for all of the volunteers who make this organization what it is today and what it will be in the future. Our committee volunteers are truly the people who bring the MAPA mission to life and are responsible for sharing and supporting the practice environment PAs in Minnesota have today. A shining example of MAPA volunteer advocacy in action was achieved in May when Minnesota Governor Tim Walls signed HF 3989, the 2022 PA Harmonization Act, into law. This act updated the language of numerous Minnesota statutes to align with the changes brought forth by the PA Modernization Practice Act of 2020. The new law became effective on August 1st of this year. Here are some of the notable areas where changes occurred. PAs as attending providers for the purposes of hospice laws, consistent with recently changed federal law, Services provided by PAs are added to the list of services that can be provided by an assisted living service. PAs to the list of providers who may determine pregnancy for the purpose of statutes relating to maternal and child health. PAs to the list of providers who may diagnose a patient as in a terminal condition for the purposes of administering, withholding, or withdrawing medical treatment in reliance on a patient's living will. PAs to the list of providers who may determine that a patient lacks decision-making capacity for the purpose of carrying out a health care directive. PAs to the list of providers who may refer a patient for occupational therapy. PAs to the list of providers who may dispense drugs in certain cases, such as health professional shortage areas where pharmacy access is scarce. PAs to the list of providers who may serve as medical directors for detoxification and withdrawal management programs. PAs to the list of providers who may order prosthetic or orthotic devices for the purposes of Medicaid. And PAs to the definitions of qualified professional for the purposes of mental health and substance use disorder for the purpose of public welfare programs. 
These changes would have never occurred without the diligent efforts of our legislative and reimbursement committee members, especially PA Leslie Clayton, our lobbyist Tom Lehman, and the support we received from AAPA as a constituent organization. I'd also like to take a moment to highlight a sampling of some of the newer amazing content and tools for professional development and advancement developed by MAPA volunteers in the last year, in case you missed it. Our freshly created MAPA podcast that you are listening to right now, a newly launched CME on-demand library for Category 1 CME that you can access for a reduced cost whenever and wherever you'd like, and new content is expected here monthly, a continued return to in-person CME conferences with our upcoming fall CME conference in Duluth, Pride Listening Session with LGBTQAPAs, MAPA meet and greet at AAPA's last conference, Medicare updates for PA's webinar, the past, present, and future medical practice for black PA's in Minnesota webinar and panel discussion, CMS reimbursement update webinar, virtual PA day on the hill, student CME track at the spring conference, and the virtual student challenge bowl. Watch your email weekly for a things to know this week email that will continue to highlight what's new and what's happening in our organization in between our newsletter updates and articles. As you can see, MAPA is always working on something for you. MAPA has accomplished so much, not the least of which is the fact that Minnesota has one of the best PA practice environments in the nation. That becomes even more remarkable when you consider that MAPA membership currently only includes 19.4% of licensed PAs in Minnesota. As the saying goes, decisions are made by those who show up. Can you imagine what we could accomplish if a majority of PAs in Minnesota were members? I challenge you to ask yourself, are you going to show up for your professional organization this year? Join me in making hashtag Team Minnesota PA as strong as it could possibly be. Here are just a few ideas and every little bit counts. Renew your membership if you are lapsed or about to lapse. Encourage at least one other Minnesota PA to join MAPA. Become one of our amazing volunteers and join a committee. Attend a CME conference event or give the on-demand CME library a try. Submit to present at a CME conference or contribute to on-demand CME library. Again, Team Minnesota PA needs you on it. Next up are a number of updates related to the upcoming fall CME conference taking place in September on Thursday the 22nd and Friday the 23rd in Duluth. First, the program lineup is now available. Make plans to join us and connect with fellow PAs, earn valuable CME credits, brush up on clinical knowledge, and build up your practice toolkit at the conference. View our website to see the schedule of presentations ranging from general internal medicine to specialty areas such as cardiology, oncology, gastroenterology, reproductive health, and preventative health. Additionally, there will be professional development CME presentations on leadership and financial success. And lastly, there are three workshops for building your skills in suturing and orthopedic examination. These workshops require an additional registration and fee. 
The program is not yet approved for CME credit. However, conference organizers plan to apply for 17 AAPA Category 1 CME credits from the AAPA review panel, and the total number of approved credits is yet to be determined. And if you're attending the Fall CME, join MAPA on Thursday for a night of networking at the Rathskeller. This will be a great opportunity to connect with colleagues after a first night of the conference. Light hors d'oeuvres will be provided and drinks will be available for purchase. All conference attendees are welcome to attend and you can follow on Facebook for updates on this event. And regardless, if you're attending the fall CME, check out this year's featured charity, which is Lifehouse Duluth, a charity that provides a place of acceptance, safety, and belonging where youth can reclaim a positive, healthy, and hopeful future. Conference attendees are encouraged to bring baby formula, young men's clothes, especially boxers, socks, and joggers, and other listed items to the Fall CME Conference, so MAPA can make a large donation to LifeHouse after the conference concludes. Financial donations are also welcome. Attendees may bring cash donations or make checks out to LifeHouse Attention Development Office. And here's one more way to support a good cause related to the fall CME. MAPA is proud to offer first-year student scholarships to aid in the high cost of education. The scholarship program is largely funded through fundraisers, so your participation is greatly appreciated. We hope you will participate in the scholarship fundraising event during the conference. We will have a variety of unique raffle prizes to pique your interest. Watch future social media posts and the weekly Things to Know This Week email for a sneak peek. Raffle tickets will be available for sale on site at the conference in the following increments. $10 for one ticket, $25 for four tickets, and $50 for 10 tickets. Next up is the first of two PSAs for this episode. Know the ABCs of viral hepatitis. Hepatitis is the inflammation of the liver. When the liver is inflamed or damaged, its function and your health can be affected. Hepatitis A is acute and very contagious and is spread when someone ingests the virus through close contact with an infected person or through eating contaminated food or drink. Symptoms include fatigue, nausea, stomach pain, and jaundice. Hepatitis B is both acute and chronic and is spread via body fluids and rarely in food sources. For some, it can be a long-term chronic infection that leads to serious and life-threatening health issues like cirrhosis or liver cancer. The best way to prevent both hepatitis A and B is to get vaccinated. Hepatitis C infections come from sharing body fluids or sharing needles or other items used to prepare and inject drugs. When symptoms of hepatitis C appear, they are often a sign of advanced liver disease. There is no vaccine for hepatitis C, but it is now easily cured once identified. Learn more about hepatitis from your healthcare provider and from the Minnesota Academy of PAs at minnesotapa.org. And here is some additional information on this topic from PA Conrad Ross, who practices at Essentia Health in Duluth and has worked for 22 years in gastroenterology with a subspecialty in the field of hepatology. Additionally, he serves in the Minnesota National Guard as colonel and the first PA state surgeon for the Minnesota Army National Guard. Hepatitis is, of course, inflammation of the liver. It is important to remember that it is often tied together in ours as well as our patients' minds as meaning infectious or contagious, but in many cases it's neither. 
Hepatitis is often discovered in asymptomatic individuals undergoing screening and general medical exams, but also during the evaluation of individuals with risk factors. We need to recall that liver enzymes including ALT, AST, bilirubin, ELK-FOS, and GGT are not an assessment of how the liver is functioning, but more of a picture into what is happening in and outside of the liver. It is important to note that the magnitude of elevation does not indicate the severity of the disease, and persistent elevation or intermittent elevation, regardless of the magnitude, warrants further evaluation. We often will draw a hepatic function test or complete metabolic panels and discover that the transaminases, ALT or AST, are elevated. This is a hepatocellular pattern of hepatitis. Importantly, these elevations mean that the liver cells, aka Kupfer cells, are irritated by something, and our job is to discover why so we can help prevent the possible development of scarring, aka fibrosis, which can turn into cirrhosis if untreated. ALT is specific to the liver, while AST is not and can be elevated by muscle injuries such as rhabdomyolysis or coronary muscle tissue injury in a myocardial infarction or even intestinal causes. ALT and AST can indeed be elevated from viral hepatitis such as hep A, hep B, and hep C predominantly in the U.S., but also from hereditary causes and metabolic causes. Elevation of transaminases can be classified into mild, less than 120, moderate, 120 to 800, and severe, greater than 800, which is helpful in establishing a differential diagnosis. Mild hepatitis is often non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, aka NAFLD, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, aka NASH, or chronic viral hepatitis, including hep C and chronic hep B. Moderate hepatitis is acute viral hepatitis, mostly hep A or hep B and rarely hep C, but we must also consider Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus and recently in kids adenovirus. Chronic viral hepatitis B and C, alcohol hepatitis and autoimmune hepatitis. Finally, severe elevations can be acute viral drug or toxin-induced, or ischemic in nature. A useful memory tool I use is hep A is acute and rarely chronic, hep B is both acute and chronic, and hep C is chronic. It is recommended that all patients have at least one time hep C antibody checked, now regardless of age or risk factors. Hep C is now curable in 97 to 99% of infected patients with a simple eight-week regimen of oral, well-tolerated, once-daily medications, so it is very important to identify and treat those individuals. More work is needed in the realm of Hep B, but I am confident that we will get there eventually. Hepatobiliary disease is classified by elevated alkaline phosphatase, bilirubin, and GGTP, it is useful to separate causes of elevated hepatobiliary markers in the context of abdominal pain versus patients without pain. If symptomatic, consider evaluation of the bile duct with ultrasound to start. If new onset of painless jaundice, consider pancreatic cancer in your differential and consider a CT of the pancreas. 
Further evaluation of asymptomatic elevated alkaline phosphatase could include an anti-mitochondrial antibody to look for primary biliary cholangitis, PBC, and a smooth muscle antibody to look for primary sclerosis cholangitis, PSC. Like the AST, alkaline phosphatase is not isolated to the liver and can be elevated from other causes such as bone, intestine, and pregnancy. Now for a number of member highlights, PA Peter Lindblom has accepted an invitation by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, aka SCCM, to serve as a panel member on guidelines to address the use of ultrasound for adult critically ill and injured patients, focused update. This group is composed of national and international critical care ultrasound leader clinicians and is tasked with building upon the previously published ultrasound guidelines. This focused update will be based upon a review of the current literature using the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation process using a designated guide methodologist. The estimated 18-month panel's work will culminate with the publication of the updated focused guidelines. P.A. Lindblom has been a member of SCCM for nearly two decades and has served SCCM in various capacity over that time. P.A. Lindblom currently practices in trauma and surgical critical care at North Memorial Health. He has obtained his Registered Diagnostic Medical Sonographers, RDMS, certificate, and has been using ultrasound in his clinical practice and teaching it to other clinicians for over a decade. Now for a few distinguished fellows. Congratulations to PAs Vanessa Bester and Terrence Panvika on becoming AAPA Distinguished Fellows. The Distinguished Fellow Program recognizes PAs for exceptional contribution to the profession. Applicants must demonstrate evidence of achievements in at least three of these areas, Distinguished in medical practice, education, research or healthcare management, leadership in medicine and healthcare, professional involvement, commitment to lifelong learning, and community service. And before we move on from member highlights, a quick reminder that MAPA membership has its benefits. The membership committee is working hard on obtaining exclusive discounts for MAPA members. So far, we have secured exclusive discounts for Roche Review, Exam Master, and Stat Pearls, and we're working on more, so stay tuned. To access the discount code, sign in on the website, and under the Membership tab, look for the link labeled Members Only Benefits. Up next is the other public service announcement for this episode. Year over year, the amount of drug overdose deaths in Minnesota is increasing. The rising number is driven by synthetic opioids like fentanyl and other drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine. If someone is overdosing, call 911. In Minnesota, the Good Samaritan Law provides limited protections to people who call 911 and or administer naloxone in response to a suspected or known drug overdose. When calling 911, be sure to tell them what drugs were taken how long ago they were taken, and how much was taken. If someone is overdosing on an opioid like heroin, fentanyl, or prescription-based opioids, you can use the Opioid Overdose Reversal Drug Naloxone, which is available without a prescription at pharmacies. If naloxone is given, still call 911. 
If you or someone you know needs help with substance abuse, talk to a healthcare provider. Learn more about what to do in case of a drug overdose from the Minnesota Academy of PAs at minnesotapa.org. And here is some additional information on this topic from PA Kate Larson, who is an assistant professor at St. Catharines University PA program and works for M Health Fairview in internal medicine. She volunteers as a preceptor at the St. Mary's Medical and Rehabilitative Therapies Clinic on the St. Kate's campus. She is also the MAPA faculty representative for the St. Kate's program. International Overdose Awareness Day on August 31st aims to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths, and acknowledge the grief of family and friends who have lost loved ones due to overdose. Addiction and overdose are public health crises both in the U.S. and globally. The majority of overdose deaths involve opioids, with a significant increase in synthetic opioid overdose from fentanyl. In the state of Minnesota, there was a 35% increase in the number of overdose deaths involving opioids over the one-year period from 2020 to 2021. Preliminary data reported 685 opioid overdose deaths in 2020 and 924 deaths in 2021. The Minnesota Department of Health found that the synthetic opioid fentanyl was involved in 90% of deaths involving opioids. Statewide, there have also been substantial increases in the number of overdose deaths involving methamphetamine and cocaine, which may be laced with fentanyl. Signs of an opioid overdose include shallow or stopped breathing, unusual snoring or gurgling sounds, no response to stimuli, blue or gray lips and fingertips. Naloxone, aka Narcan, can be administered intranasally or via injection to rapidly reverse an opioid overdose. Those at risk for an opioid overdose should carry naloxone. Community-based organizations provide free naloxone training and kits. So what can PAs do? Important aspects of reducing overdose deaths include screening for substance use disorders, following opioid prescribing guidelines, providing referrals for addiction treatment when needed, prescribing naloxone and education, and prescribing buprenorphine. The most recent practice guidelines allow PAs and other prescribers to prescribe buprenorphine for treatment of opioid use disorder for up to 30 patients without a formal X waiver training. To treat more than 30 patients with buprenorphine, PAs must complete 24 hours of training. If you or someone you know is experiencing substance use and or mental health disorders, call the SAMHSA National Health Line at 1-800-662-HELP which is 4357. Now for an important statement from MAPA related to a current national event. The Minnesota Academy of PAs has significant concerns about the negative impact of the Supreme Court decision of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization upon the reproductive health care rights of our patients and the patient-PA relationship. We stand with AAPA on this issue and the statement issued on June 24th in response. We believe strongly in the importance of the 
patient provider relationship and that this relationship functions most effectively when patients are presented with all the relevant and necessary information to make shared decisions in their care. AAPA adamantly opposes any external interference in the ability to deliver appropriate and necessary medical care. AAPA will continue to advocate on behalf of patients to uphold the privacy of the patient-provider relationship and to ensure patients have access to services and information they need. AAPA's position on reproductive health and access to care for all patients is grounded in the principle articulated in our guidelines for ethical conduct for the PA profession. Patients have a right to access the full range of reproductive health care services, including fertility treatments, contraception, sterilization, and abortion. PAs have an ethical obligation to provide balanced and unbiased clinical information about reproductive health care. When the PA's personal values conflict with providing full disclosure or providing certain services such as sterilization or abortion, the PA needs not become involved in that aspect of the patient's care. By referring the patient to a qualified provider who is willing to discuss and facilitate all treatment options, the PA fulfills their ethical obligation to ensure the patient's access to all legal options. And last but certainly not least are the PA program updates. And this issue, we have one update from one of the five Minnesota PA programs. Congrats to the PA program at Mayo Clinic School of Health Sciences in Rochester as they celebrated and graduated their inaugural class last month. And here is to many more. Now, as we close this issue of Impact, a few last reminders. If you would like to get involved with the production of the Impact newsletter and or this podcast, please email us at info at minnesotapa.org, and we will be happy to talk with you more about your ideas and opportunities to get involved. And on that note, that's it for this episode of the MAPA podcast. We encourage you to subscribe in the player of your choice. And while you're there, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review if you would be so kind. Share this with your PA friends and colleagues. Explore the website at minnesotapa.org. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MNACADPA. Choose whatever works best for you to stay up to date and in the know with MAPA and PA practice. And until next time, remember to take care of yourself so you can take care of your patients.